provoked, provoked. When was the last time that your spirit was provoked, that your spirit was stirred? It's important for us to look around at our communities, look around at our own lives and allow the spirit of God to provoke us, to stir us. The apostle Paul has just come from Berea. He's fleeing for his life. He comes to Athens. And in Athens, he sees all of these false gods, all of these worship to to idols, and it provokes him, it moves his spirit, and it compelled him to share the gospel. So I hope this morning that we're provoked, that we're challenged, that we're stirred. Verse 16, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Who is Paul waiting for? He's waiting for Paul and, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy. They were still coming to Athens. And as he's waiting, he's looking around. Paul's not just taking in the sights. There was a lot of amazing buildings, architecture in Athens, but he's looking at the spiritual condition of the community. And Athens has quite a a rich history. When the Greeks were at their peak, Athens was the epicenter in academics, but also commercially and politically. Now that the Romans are in charge, it's under the Roman Empire, Athens has really diminished, but it's still an educational hub. It would be similar to a, a Harvard or an Oxford or a Cambridge. And so Paul is in this place, but it was also given over to idols. The ancients wrote and said that there was an estimate of 30,000 idols, gods, in Athens alone. One ancient wrote and said it was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. So Paul's observing this, and I'd like to draw your attention to two words, provoked and saw, provoked and saw. He saw it. He, he looked around and, and he saw the spiritual condition of Athens, and it moved him, it provoked him. And this word provoked, it means to stir. It means to, to irritate. And there is a, a holy stirring that God wants to do in our hearts and our lives. But a lot of times we get to a place where we either get comfortable with the dark spiritual condition that we're in, or we get calloused or somewhere in between. And it's been a really, really long time to the where the darkness around us stirs us. Have you found yourself saying things like, well, this is just the way that it's going to be? There's going to be this level of of lostness. There's going to be this death culture that we live in. There's going to be an explosion of sexual perversity. There's just no hope. Why care? Why get involved? Why be stirred? It's, It's easier just to be comfortable. It's easier just to be calloused. It's easier just to go along with my own life. I find that life is so busy just trying to survive trying to get the bills paid, rent, mortgage, groceries, laundry. Laundry is a beast. It's a, it's a never-ending beast, right? I'm sure right now you're thinking about all of the things that you've got to get done on this Sunday to prepare for the week and getting kids to their different activities. All of the list just goes on and on. And before you know it, we, we've stopped to consider, well, what's the spiritual condition of my home? What's the spiritual condition of my neighborhood? 
What's the spiritual condition of my workplace, of, of the schools in, in Colorado Springs? And I think if we, if we see, if our eyes are open, that we'll start to have a provoked spirit like the Apostle Paul. If you're a little provoked, if you're a little bit stirred, that's a good place to be. As you drive around the city and you interact with, with our culture and you go, you know, there needs to be change. There needs to be revival. There needs to be a work of the spirit that's happening. When we look at our own lives and say, God, would, would you wake me up? Would, would you stir me up? That, that's a good place to be. God wants to stir us. He, he wants us to be provoked. On Wednesday night, we're going to go in depth and look at the bondage of idolatry, what, what idolatry does in our lives. But this is what Psalms 115 says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Psalms 115, verse three through eight. Be careful what you worship because you're gonna become like what you worship. That's the way God designed us. So if you choose an idol that can't speak, that can't talk, that can't deliver, that can't think, you're gonna become like that dumb idol, right? And this is what's happening in Athens. They have placed false gods and they are becoming like what they worship. In verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue where the Jews were, does that here in Athens, but also he goes out into the marketplace. This is where business is done. And he preaches Jesus in the marketplace. You know, Satan would love for the message of Jesus to stay inside of the four walls of the church. He would love for the gospel to stay inside of the confounds of our home. Now, do we proclaim Christ here? Absolutely. Do we celebrate Christ in our homes? I hope so. But there's so many people in the marketplace, in the public square, that need to know and hear about who Jesus is. And I hope you understand, for Paul to do this, it wasn't necessarily popular. And it's not popular for us as well. I know it comes at a cost to share Christ in your workplace, to share Christ in your neighborhood, in your school, in, in society. But as God opens doors, and it's, man, this is an opportunity for me to share Jesus, to share his crucifixion, to, to share his, his resurrection. And people are hopeless. And people are caught in idols, we very much are a culture where we worship so many things other than the one true living God. And say, Lord, would you use me? Would you give me boldness? Would you give me a heart to, to take Jesus and speak of Jesus outside of the church? There's some people that will not come inside of a church to hear about Christ. We've got to go to them. Maybe that was you where you didn't know Christ as your savior. You didn't grow up in a Christian family. And you weren't thinking, I need to go find a church on a Sunday morning, right? 
And somebody came to you with the message of Christ, Christ going out into the marketplace. In verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Athens was known for philosophy. Going back in Athens history, they had very famous philosophers. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, all from, from Athens. Their teachings continue to affect the idea of philosophy to this day. Paul encounters two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and their mindset is still alive and well today. Epicureans were all about pleasure. That was the chief virtue in life was, I have got to get the most marrow out of life as possible. I've got to enjoy life. They rejected and pushed away any fear of death and they resisted being excessive. So it was this idea of having pleasure with a minimalistic, peaceful life. In modern day language, you would be, be the best version of you. I am so sick of hearing that. You know what the best version of you is? You're a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve God's punishment. What's my goal for 2024? Be the best version of you. Is that like version 7.0? I mean, what, what is that, right? But it's this mindset of I've just got to have the most pleasure in life and, and I'm going to spend my life crafting my life and, and being the best human that I possibly can and, and being kind. And, and this was the Epicurean mindset. They did believe in gods, but they believed that these gods had no impact upon their life. That sounds pretty familiar as well. This, this belief in God, but God is not personal. God is not powerful. You're, you're not accountable to the Lord. So you just get to seek pleasure and seek it for yourselves. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics, they were pantheists in that they believed in a bunch of gods. The Bible is monotheistic. The Bible teaches one true living God. They were pantheistic. And that's represented in Athens with all of these false gods. They were committed to moral character. They were committed to trying to, to live a moral, excellent life. And their motto was, don't get overly excited. Enjoy our trial. Thus the expression of being a stoic, you're emotionless. Pastor Dan Hooker, our Ellicott campus pastor, right? He, he may be from the Stoic ph philosophy, right? This is the idea of, of the Stoics. And they're coming and they're saying, you know, whatever happens in life, you just have to grin and bear it, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just try to, to get through. And, and that idea is alive and well. There's some that go, you know, forget pleasure. I'm just gonna try to get through this life and, and I think I can do it by not getting too excited or getting too disappointed. It's just another day, another day. What did they say of Paul? They called him a babbler. In the Greek, this actually means a seed pecker. It was a, a bird picking for seed. And, and this was a, a ridicule of, of Paul. You're, you're a babbler, you're a seed pecker. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Like, this must be some foreign God that we haven't heard of because 
Paul is preaching and he's declaring to them Jesus and the resurrection. To teach the resurrection, you have to teach the crucifixion. For the resurrection to make sense, you have to talk about Christ's crucifixion. So, so Peter comes and he, or Paul comes and he proclaims Christ to them. In verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Acropolis saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. The Acropolis is Mars Hill. There was a marble hill where they would come and that they would meet, the council uh, would meet, the political entity would, would meet there at the Acropolis. And so they bring Paul to hear this new doctrine of this foreign God that they're not familiar with. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Isn't this interesting? They loved to hear something new. In fact, if it's new, it's got to be true. Oh man, I've never heard this before. So this has to be true. We also live in this culture and, and this mindset where there's so much information coming to us, we're almost addicted to what's new. What's the new happening? What's the new event? What, what's the new item coming out? What, what is Amazon's deal of the day, right? What, what's new? What's true of Athens and what's true of the United States of America is have we possibly lost an appetite for timeless truth? <laughs> have we lost an appetite for the truth of, of God's word? You maybe have heard this, but if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. What did Solomon say in the book of Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. So instead of looking for the next new thing, the next news to, to hit. And we don't even really take the time to examine whether the news is true or not. We just allow the story to hit us and, and move on to the next to sink ourselves into God's timeless truth. And this really brings us back to last week with the Bereans that submitted themselves to the authority of God's word. They're saying, we're gonna sink ourselves into the truths of scripture. But for the moment, they're interested in what Paul has to say because Paul's the new thing. We get into Paul's message. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Acropolis and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. I guess so, with all of these idols. Paul's courage is on display here as he's standing in this council standing in Mars Hill, this intellectual hub. Verse 23, for I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Paul is thoughtful. He's strategic in his introduction saying, I saw one particular God, one particular idol that was dedicated to the unknown God. This is how pantheistic they were <coughs> with all of their gods to say, well, maybe we forgot one. And so we need to make sure to, to worship the unknown God as well. And when we're sharing Christ, we want to look for an open door. We want to build a bridge. Jesus was the master at this. 
When he talked to the woman at the well, how did he start off? Hey, could you give me a glass of water? Would you give me a a drink of water? Jesus was intending to give her living water. Towards the end of the conversation, Jesus is like, why don't you go get your husband? She's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus graciously says, you've answered well, because the guy you're with is not your husband, and you've actually got four husbands. He got really deep with her. He got to the core of the issue. But where did it start? It started with, hey, could I get a glass of water? And Paul starts with, hey, guys, I happen to notice this inscription over here to this idol of the own unknown God. Let me, let me tell you about this God that, that you don't know. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the God of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Where does Paul begin? He begins with creation. The one true living God is the creator. He made the world and everything in it, since he's the Lord of heaven. Because he's the creator, he's the Lord of creation and everything in it. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The Greeks believed that their gods lived in temples. And what Paul is saying, the one true living God cannot be contained to a building. Is it important to believe that God created the world? Is it important to teach creation? I think so. Because if you reject creation, you're going to have a really hard time with the rest of the Bible. If God didn't create the world, man, it's hard to believe in the resurrection of Christ. How did Jesus raise from the dead? If God didn't create the world, you'll probably struggle with the worldwide flood. That God destroyed the world with the flood except for Noah and his family. If you don't believe in creation, that little story about Jonah being saved by a great fish and he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights till the fish has an urge to regurge and right? You're like, how can Jonah live in the belly of a great fish? That's not possible. Well, it's possible with the creator. When God's the creator, nothing is impossible. And it it separates God from all of these false gods and from these idols. Did did Buddha create everything? Does Buddha have the power to, to, to save? And so Paul begins with creation. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. This is the self-sufficiency of God. Because God is the creator, he doesn't need anything from us. He's not dependent upon us. And that's really important for us to understand. God doesn't need our worship. He's designed us to worship. He's glorified when we worship, but he's not up there in heaven going, oh, I I don't know what I'm going to do if they don't worship me. God doesn't need our money. It all belongs to him, but he's not going, oh no, what's gonna happen to my work if if people don't give? If they don't give tithes and they don't give offerings, God is self-sufficient in and of himself because he is the creator and he gives life. He's given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you all things. In verse 26, and he has made from all, one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This is a fascinating verse, an interesting verse. From one blood, he made every nation. Well, what is that? That's Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, God made all of the nations. Ethnicity, 
the variety of nations comes from a creative God. It glorifies God. He is the creator. Being made in God's image, do you enjoy to create? Some of you probably love cooking. If you love to cook, do you always just make the same thing? Grilled cheese every night for dinner. I, oh, so good, right? And God, as the creator, there's variety. And in nations and in culture and ethnicity, God has showed his glory by creating variety in ethnicity. From one blood are the nations. And the nations are gathered together in the one blood of Jesus Christ. We're from Adam and Eve, and Jesus died for us. We're all saved the same way. And heaven is the unification of the nations. When we're around the throne room of God, for God to be glorified in all of these different dialects, all of these different ethnicities. We've been united in Christ through the blood of Jesus. God has created his body. With these nations, with these ethnic groups, notice that God has determined their appointed times and how long they're to dwell. To dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So how long these nations are going to be in existence and where they're going to be in an existence. And this is a fascinating study. As as you look back on history, the Persian Empire collapsed quickly. Well, how did that happen? It was God's hand, right? The Roman Empire collapsed. The Ottoman Empire collapsed. Did you know that Texas was actually its own independent country for a short period of time? If you're from Texas, oh, you know, (laughs) right? But apparently Spain colonized Texas and before Texas became part of the United States, it was his own independent country, right? We are so prideful as the United States of America. We believe as Americans, we can sin like nobody's business and there'll be no consequences, and it could never happen to the United States of America. The United States of America could never collapse and be assimilated into other nations. We'll talk to the Persian Empire. We'll talk to the Roman Empire. Talk to the Ottoman Empire. God very quickly can humble nations, and he's appointed time. A humble attitude of the United States of America would be to acknowledge God's blessing and submit ourselves to his plan and his will because the Lord's the one that allows people groups to dwell for appointed times in appointed places. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they may might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. This is the plan of God for nations that nations would seek the Lord, that they would come to know the knowledge of of Christ, that they would grope for him, that they would search for him, that they would long for him. This is the great commission where Jesus commands us to, as disciples to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples of the nations. And we care here about Colorado Springs. We care about Colorado, but we also care about the nations. And that's why we support missionaries around the world and try to take short-term missions trips and I know it's easy to forget about the nations of the world, but, but pray for nations. God might put a specific people group on your heart that they would come to know the Lord, that they would be gathered around the, the throne room of God. In verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we 
are also his offspring. Paul quotes a a couple of their poets, similar to quoting an artist from today to have an illustration, to make a point. And these poets have said, for in him we live and move and have our being, and that's true. Our life is in Jesus, and we are his offspring, meaning that God has created us. In verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So Paul's really attacking their mindset, attacking their worldview as they are making gods in their own image. 